If you like listening to my conversations with interesting people, you'll love listening to them or watching them on Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get access to these interviews early and ad-free, as well as bonus episodes from my YouTube channel and exclusive series you can't find anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and help promote content that matters. This video is brought to you by CuriosityStream and Nebula. Hey, did you hear that they're stacking Artemis 1? This thing's actually starting to happen. Some pictures were released about a month ago of the SLS being stacked in the VAB at Cape Canaveral, and this is really exciting. Look, for all the valid criticisms of the space launch system, this will be the most powerful rocket ever built. It's gonna be 15% more powerful than the Saturn V. And yes, Starship will have more thrust when it comes online. I'll let you guys argue in the comments whether or not it's gonna come online first, so. Also, I thought it was pretty cool when they said that this is the first deep space rocket that was assembled in the VAB since the Apollo missions. Right now, they're targeting a November launch. Uh, that's probably optimistic, but you know, they're, all the pieces have been in the VAB, I wanna say since March, they're assembling it. This is starting to get real. The purpose of the Artemis program is, of course, to take us back to the moon, but this time to stay permanently in a moon base that uh, would use some of the stuff that we've learned over the last 20 years in the ISS. In fact, you can kind of think of it as the ISS on the moon, uh, in the early stages anyway. But I have a theory. Um, you could call it the Wu-Tang cash rules everything around me theory, which is basically that in order for a permanent presence on the moon to really be sustainable and successful, something has to pay for that. The public support for space travel is fickle, to say the least. I mean, just a few years after the event that we all now seem to agree was the greatest achievement in human history, the public was so disinterested in it that they stopped funding the program. I mean, seriously, the, the moon landings are just now like shorthand for the ultimate in human achievement, right? I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, you know, I don't know, how come we can put a man on the moon but we can't make a pen that works the first time? Or how come we can put a man on the moon but we can't make a restaurant table that doesn't wobble? Or, oh, we can land a man on the moon, but I can't get a date. <laughs> We have been using that moment in history as the benchmark against which we measure everything else for 50 years. But people in 1972 were like, they what? What happened? Oh, they're going to the moon? Again? Hey, here's a thought. Uh, maybe don't interrupt me while I'm reading unless you're bringing me something interesting, Glinda. Put a bra on. Luckily, if we are going to the moon to stay, there's plenty of resources there that can help pay for it and set up an infrastructure for even more deep space missions. Here's what that might look like. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking around on the moon in 1969 might be what everybody's talking about when they say we landed on the moon. But the fact of the matter is we landed on the moon a long time before that. Kinda. In fact, it was the Russians that first landed on the moon with their Luna 2 mission in 1959, a full 10 years earlier. Of course, landed is one way to put it. Another way might be uh, slammed into it at 7,400 miles an hour. But this was the first time that human beings had interacted with a celestial body, so I mean, you know, it counts. Soft landings are much more impressive, and the Russians did pull that off with Luna 9 in January of 1966. The US was just a few months behind with Surveyor 1 in May. Surveyor missions, as the name implies, were meant to survey the moon and find places that had the most opportunity for scientific discovery. Surveyors 1, 3, 5, 6, and 7 all successfully landed and took a total of 87,000 photos of the moon. And we learned a lot from these missions. Actually, just the landing itself taught us a lot because before we landed, scientists weren't 100% sure just how, you know, fluffy the moon was. There was a real concern that the legs might just sink into the soil. You know, they didn't know how loose or compact the soil might be. For all they knew, it might be like quicksand. And the last thing you want is for your astronauts to be walking across the lunar surface and get sucked into some kind of 
quicksand that just pulls them further and further in. And then before one of their heads disappears, he says, I've got something important to tell you. And then he never finishes the, the sentence because they get sucked down into this tunnel that somehow the, the quicksand didn't fall into the tunnel. That makes no sense at all. But then, whoa, jump scare. There's a big snake in there, but the snake is hurt. The snake is hurt. So one of the astronauts like uses some kind of magical power that we've never seen before to heal the snake. And then to reward them, the snake like points them to this knife, this knife that has etched into the side of it, this design that just perfectly lines up with the place that they want to go to. You know, if you just happen to be standing in the spot that you need to be standing in for it to line up, like, okay, I'm not over it. I'm clearly, I'm clearly not over it. Surveyor, of course, set the stage for the Apollo missions. And in fact, Apollo 12 landed so close to the Surveyor 3 lander that they were actually able to go over and walk up to it and, and check on it and service it. This, this was actually the first time and only time that human beings have serviced a rover or a, a, a probe on another celestial body. Hayes Gray Art did a cool animation of it. You should be checking them out if you haven't already. Anyway, the Apollo missions, for all their glory, left behind a lot of trash, like 22 pages of trash. A lot of this was for simple weight reasons. You know, they, they wanted to preserve as much fuel as they possibly could, so they had to make it as lean as possible. For example, they left the special Hasselblad cameras that they took with them to the moon uh, on the moon's surface and just took the film back with them. Now, those are probably some expensive cameras, but for everything that they dumped, they were able to bring back something far more precious, moon rock. The astronauts took loads of these rock and dust samples home to help answer questions like, how old is the moon? Where and how did the moon originate? What history and geological features do the moon and the Earth have in common, and what are the differences? And what can the moon tell us about the rest of the solar system and the rest of the universe? 840 pounds of lunar samples were brought back to Earth, and NASA's still being really conservative about how it's used. In fact, 85% of the samples that have been brought back have not been studied at all. They're kind of keeping them clean for the, the event that there might be some future technologies that they would have clean virgin soil to play with. But of the 15% that has been analyzed, this is what we found. First of all, oxygen, which is fairly important. It's kind of hard to live in a place if you don't have any oxygen, Denver. And one could be forgiven for being surprised by that because oxygen is a gas, and as we all know, there is no atmosphere on the moon. But it is chemically bound as oxides and minerals and glass. You have to do some processing to get to it, but there's a lot of it there. 40 to 45% of the moon's composition is oxygen. So one trick that's being worked on at the European Space Agency is molten salt electrolysis. Placing the regolith in a metal basket with molten calcium chloride salt to serve as an electrolyte, the regolith is heated to 950 degrees Celsius. At this temperature, the regolith remains solid. But passing a current through it causes the oxygen to be extracted from the regolith and migrate across the salt to be collected at an anode. And this isn't such a crazy idea. Submarines have been doing this for a long time using candles. Uh, Smarter Every Day did a whole video about it. So this would not only give us air to breathe, it's also necessary for space travel because it's used as an oxidizer with rocket fuel. And it can be combined with hydrogen to make water. They also found silicon, which makes up about 20% of the regolith, and it can obviously be used for semiconductors and solar panels and stuff. But it's actually chemically bound with some of that oxygen I was just talking about, it's a silicate ion. So yeah, mining and processing silicon can be another source of oxygen. And it can be made into a type of rocket fuel called silane, which is basically the same as methane, but instead of a carbon atom, there's a silicon atom. And then when burned with oxygen, you can get water and silica as a result. The specific impulse of silane is slightly less than methane, and you would probably uh, require more oxygen to get the same amount of weight. Another benefit is silicon ferroalloys, which can be used to make cast iron and steel. And silicon metal can be alloyed with aluminum to make certain chemicals like silicones. Luckily, there's a lot of aluminum on the moon as well. And we obviously know that aluminum is good for certain construction and manufacturing uses, but it's got other uses too. For example, one thing that you won't find on the moon is copper, which you would need a lot of for electrical wire and stuff. And while aluminum doesn't conduct quite as well as copper does, it could be used in a pinch. 
It's also useful for the construction of mirrors for solar collection and reflective materials for spacecraft because it's a really good reflector of both visible and infrared light. It also has high thermal conductivity and corrosion resistance, which makes it good for heat exchangers. The drawback is, yes, it is a good conductor of heat, but it also suffers through a lot of expansion and contraction with heat uh, changes, and the heat is going to change quite a bit on the moon. There's only a 300 degree difference between night and day there. And yeah, when aluminum is stressed over and over again, it can tend to fail eventually, which is why titanium is usually preferred over aluminum. But yeah, also anybody who's read Andy Weir's book, Artemis, um, the city of Artemis in the book uses aluminum smelting as a source of oxygen and water and everything. So the way he envisions it anyway, it could play a very important role in any kind of moon city. Rare earths can also be found on the moon, which isn't as weird as it sounds. Rare earths actually aren't as rare as the name implies and they're not limited to Earth. The name's actually sort of a bad translation of the French word terra, which was also used in terms of oxides back when this was first discovered. They're called rare even though they're abundant on Earth because they're not very dense on Earth. So you have to pull up a lot of ore to get the amount that you need of rare Earths, which is actually really damaging to the environment. But their value is actually going up because they're so used in electronics. So uh, it might be quite valuable on the moon someday. And next up is thorium. Of course, we all love thorium for the potential it has for energy here on Earth. I've covered this in a previous video, but there's a particular spot on the moon that uh, it's got the... Uh, um, there's a lot of thorium there. It's called the Compton-Belkovich Thorium Anomaly, and it was found in 1998 by the Gamma Ray Spectrometer Instrument on board the Lunar Prospector. Located between the Compton and Belkovich craters, this weird little upswelling has thorium concentrations at 5.3 micrograms per gram. Now that might not sound like a lot, but thorium concentrations on Earth are usually at 0.06 micrograms per gram. So this is 88 times more in this one spot on the moon anyway. It's thought to be an old magma flow from the early days of the moon due to the presence of other creep elements there. And then there's the water. Now you probably already know that scientists have found frozen water ice in the craters around the poles of the moon that never see any sunlight. This is a big deal. It costs $10,000 to launch one gallon of water up into space. And it's been rumored that humans are 60% water. So, you know, finding water on the moon makes it so that we don't have to tap our astronauts for the water. And if you're wondering just how much water is in them, their craters, it's a lot. Based on remote observations by radar instruments on Chandrayaan-1 and the LRO, the lunar poles have over 600 billion kilograms of water ice. That's enough to fill at least 240,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And that's a low-end estimate. And water can also be made by getting the hydrogen and oxygen out of the soil with the processing that I was talking about a second ago. I mean, having access to water on the moon would be a game-changer, not just for keeping astronauts alive and everything, but also for agriculture, possible animals up there, fuel production. Water's pretty awesome. It's done a good job here on Earth anyway. But there's one last one that we gotta talk about, especially if we ever get fusion energy off the ground and that's helium-3. This was actually the conceit of the movie Moon starring Sam Rockwell. He worked at a helium-3 mine. There is a type of fusion reaction that can be done with helium-3 that's just like regular helium, but it has an extra neutron, and it's very rare here on Earth. Basically, it's created by the radioactive decay of tritium, um, so it's actually kind of rare here, but the Moon is bombarded with it from the solar wind. The sun releases massive amounts of helium-3 in its solar wind, but it doesn't really get through the atmosphere to us, whereas the Moon has been soaking in it for billions of years. So yeah, if we can finally crack fusion energy, helium-3 mining will be big business up there. In fact, China and Russia are already setting the stage with their lunar programs. China's rover right now is up there looking around for helium-3. So you can kind of divide all these up into two camps, the in-situ utilization resources and the stuff that we might send back to Earth. 
Launch costs are going down, but it's still super expensive to put stuff up into space. Going all the way to the moon, you're looking at like $2.2 million per kilogram, so a gallon of milk would be around $6 million. So in order to justify the cost of sending these things back to Earth, there would have to be a huge economic incentive. And Helium-3 is one of the few things that actually could meet that economic incentive. Right now, because it's so rare, one gram of Helium-3 is worth $1,400. It'd be $1.4 billion per metric ton. And from what we can tell, there's 1.1 million metric tons in the surface around the moon down to the depth of a couple of meters. That's roughly $1.54 quadrillion dollars worth. Me thinks somebody's gonna find a way to get to that. If, that is, we can crack fusion energy. Cue the jokes in the comments. And where there are valuable resources, there are going to be countries trying to control them. And that's why the Artemis Accords were created. The Artemis Accords are an attempt to create a framework around the exploitation of resources on the moon. Because apparently that's where we are in human history now. As of June 2021, 12 countries have embraced the Artemis Accords, including Australia, Brazil, Canada, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, New Zealand, the Republic of Korea, Ukraine, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And the core principles include peaceful purposes, transparency, interoperability, emergency assistance, registration of space objects, release of scientific data, preserving outer space heritage, space resources, deconfliction of space activities, and orbital debris. Given that we're talking about mining the moon right now, the space resources bullet does stand out, and it can be summarized like this. The ability to extract and utilize resources on the moon, Mars, and asteroids will be critical to support safe and sustainable space exploration and development. The Artemis Accords reinforce that space resource extraction and utilization can and will be conducted under the auspices of the Outer Space Treaty, with specific emphasis on Articles 2, 6, and 11. The Outer Space Treaty was signed in 1967, and I'll avoid going down a whole rabbit hole on that. Might be worth its own video, but uh, its basic gist is to get people to play nice and be peaceful and, and cooperative in space. It's governed by the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, who oversees several other space treaties over the years, but the Artemis Accords are focused on the moon and kind of tie up all the other treaties in one package. Now, how all this plays out when money starts moving around is another matter. But stepping way back, maybe a good question to ask is, why are we doing this in the first place? You know, some would make the argument that we've ruined Earth, so now we're gonna go ruin the moon too. Big win. And I have my concerns over that as well, but there are some major advantages to doing this. First of all, the moon is gonna become a fueling station for other deep space missions, especially to Mars, now that we can, you know, create fuel from the regolith there. Plus no atmosphere and one-sixth gravity means it's a lot cheaper to launch interplanetary missions from the moon than from Earth. Not to mention that the moon is moving around the Earth at 2,288 miles an hour, so that's a lot of just free momentum you can use to just slingshot things into the solar system. It's kind of like Earth's trebuchet. Mining the moon, of course, is a lot more difficult than just dropping a few bulldozers down to the surface. Aside from problems like deep space radiation and micrometeorites, you also have the problem of moon dust. Yeah, the very thing we're going there to mine. Moon dust is kind of horrifying. It's, it's like the glitter that you can't get off of yourself except it's designed in hell. Moon dust is very, very small, but it's also very, very jagged. Uh, it'll damage your lungs if it gets into your lungs, so it makes it hard to breathe, and it can corrode and, and tear down little structures and any kind of machine or anything like that. The way we mine on the moon is gonna have to be totally different from how we mine on Earth. I mean, imagine dropping a massive pile of regolith down on a planet that has only 15% of the Earth's uh, gravity, and that's happening everywhere. There's a real danger of getting so much fine dust floating around the surface of the moon that would create a, an atmosphere of tiny microscopic daggers that could just eat everything apart and make it uninhabitable. This is the reason SpaceX moved their descent engines to the top of the Starship lander so that it blows around as little dust as possible. It's a massive engineering challenge that many companies are working on figuring out right now. Um, 
obviously we're in the early stages and right now we're just gonna have to figure out how to live there, but I do feel like it's kind of inevitable. Having said that, we have to be wary that it's done responsibly and that it's supplemental to scientific research. There's still a lot we can learn from the moon. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, there, there is no erosion on the moon whatsoever, so there's still the possibility of asteroid impacts that hit the Earth and then flung things out to the moon, and it's still in pristine condition out there. There is a non-zero percent chance that there's a T-Rex tooth that got blasted off the face of the Earth 64 million years ago on the moon right now. There's also a record of the sun's radioactivity etched into certain moon rocks, which we could learn a lot from. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to mess up the moon too much. It's the moon. The moon has been inspiring humanity for thousands of generations. It's only recently that we discovered that it's got some practical value up there. Let's just hope we don't forget the inspirational value as well. Who knows, you may be one of the last generations to see the moon in its pristine condition. So get outside and enjoy it while you can. If you want to go deeper into the Artemis program and the upcoming moon missions and the technology that's going to be required for us to live there, I can definitely recommend the film Return to the Moon on CuriosityStream. Here they imagine what moon colonization would look like, the technologies that would be required, and some of the companies working on those technologies. If you enjoy this topic, it's a nice deeper dive on the subject. CuriosityStream, of course, has thousands of documentary series from some of the best documentary filmmakers from around the world, and it was created by the guys behind the Discovery Channel, so it's kind of like what the Discovery Channel was meant to be. It'll suck you in. Just get ready to binge on some nerd stuff. Even better, with your subscription to CuriosityStream, you get free access to Nebula, the streaming service I'm a part of, as well as many of your favorite YouTube channels like Isaac Arthur, who's gone way deeper on moon mining and planetary exploration than pretty much anybody. You can see all our videos ad-free, and you get access to Nebula originals that you can't see anywhere else, including my original series, Mysteries of the Human Body. This is a series where we take a look at the human body and all the weird stuff that goes on inside of it. We're currently four episodes in, there's still a couple more to come, so you can go check it out right now and get caught up and then be the first to see the new ones. And you can get this bundle for 26% off of an annual subscription, which means it's $14.79 for the whole year for two streaming services. That is ridiculous. So yeah, if you're curious, just go over to curiositystream.com slash Scott to get started. It's seriously the best streaming deal on the planet, and I personally use and enjoy both services, so I highly recommend them. Uh, yeah, just go to curiositystream.com slash Joe Scott, check it out. All right, big thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this video, and a big shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon, uh, who are supporting this channel, forming an awesome community, being really great peeps. Uh, I got some new people I gotta call out their names real quick. Let's murder them. We got some Stiggles, Dr. Gibberish, Teresa the Awesome, Tyson, Lothric, Jesper de Jong, Shitty Bill, Shitty Bots, uh, Niam Keho, Danny Edwards, Daniel Blankstein, welcome back, Daniel. Uh, Josh Hahn, Juan Cristancho, Gabriel's Milk, and River Johnson. Thank you guys so much. If you'd like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and all kinds of just cool stuff, and just, you know, form an awesome community, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it, and if this is your first time here, Google thinks you'll like this one, so why not? Click it, just click on that thing, just click. Just make a click, just take a look. There you go, you'll like it. Uh, there's also all these others down here that got my face on them, on the thumbnails, and if you enjoy them, I invite you to subscribe. I'll come back with videos every Monday. Cool, cool, that's it for now. Thanks for watching. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week, and I'll see you on Monday. <coughs> I got choked up. I got choked at the end. Leave that in, Nick. Love you guys, take care.